there are many ways in the Buddhist teaching where balance is talked about, not just in the teaching of equanimity, but uh, many ways that, for example, in the seven factors of enlightenment, there is a weighing of the energetic qualities and the tranquilizing qualities of those seven factors headed off by mindfulness and the five spiritual faculties. There's um, faith and wisdom on one side and there's concentration and energy on another side. That's headed off with also with mindfulness. But there's another beautiful set uh, that creates a balance in the Buddhist teaching and that's the balance of compassion and wisdom. And that's what I'd like to speak about this evening. Actually, the sacred union of compassion and wisdom. There are three very pithy lines of understanding by Sri Nisargadatta that uh, these lines are often quoted in Western circles. Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing and between the two my love flows. Between the two my life flows. I always come back to that when I feel like the practice or the, um, the teachings are getting too heady for me or maybe I'm falling into too much of the syrupy sweetness of uh, the love side of it. So compassion and wisdom or love and wisdom, these are two wings of the Dharma. It's said that without compassion, wisdom cannot be readily experienced from the heart because it's just from the head. Um, and compassion brings uh, to wisdom a lot of opening, uh, more and more opening. Without wisdom, uh, it leaves us mostly in, in our hearts and we can get bogged down by uh, places in the heart that open to um, a lot of grief or sorrow. It's said that the great flight of freedom needs both the strength and levity of both of these wings. And so it's good for each of us to check it out in ourselves, see where we could use some balancing compassion and wisdom. Tonight I'd like to talk about how compassion brings us closer to what's difficult for us, what's difficult in the world, and how it opens our hearts to reveal wisdom, the wisdom that's just waiting to be discerned. And then how wisdom naturally strengthens greater compassion. There's a cycle that happens. Compassion strengthens wisdom, wisdom strengthens compassion, and it gets deeper and stronger as we go along in our practice. I think each one of us has a lot in common with each other. We're drawn to spiritual practice for various reasons, unique reasons to ourselves, but mostly we all want to be more caring we all want to be more open. We all want to be more balanced. 
so that we can face the difficulties in ourselves and in the world around us. We don't want to be caught in aversion or in attachment. And we want to know when we're taking it so personally and to be able to let go of that. We want to experience joy, happiness, and know the causes that activate them. Yet we don't want to get attached to those places. We want to realize how we can see the world with quiet eyes, as I spoke about earlier in the retreat. To experience that unconditional love more often, more for ourselves, more for others. All of these allow us to see things as they are, to see things more clearly. This is a, a quote from Agnes Au. She uh, wrote an article in the Shambhala Sun. And it, this um, particular edition of the Shambhala Sun had a lot of writing from women, Buddhist women. So I've really taken to heart what she said. I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace, and in so doing, to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. Just to um, picture that in my mind, to have that aspiration gives me the chills, to be able to open to all of life, not just what I feel comfortable to open to, but to open to all of life, to bring to it what is beneficial, appropriate, useful. As I mentioned earlier, just in passing, that many of us come to practice in the beginning and say, we want to open, we want our hearts to open, we want to open to all of life. But for a while, we kind of catch ourselves only opening to what's beautiful, what's easy for us. Um, it's hard to open to what's difficult. But in order to open our hearts, we need to open to it all. As Carl Jung said, I'm just remembering, enlightenment isn't envisioning mm, fields of light. It's by making the darkness known, by making the darkness known. There's a common saying in Buddhist circles that you really can't go around. You have to go through. Otherwise, you're just fooling yourself in a way. So we all have this common yearning, this spiritual yearning, to connect more deeply with ourselves. This is a sacred yearning that we all have. Sometimes our teachers put uh, this Pali word to it, samvega, the spiritual urgency. To know more deeply the truth of life in our own hearts, and therefore know it for all beings everywhere to know ourselves and this sense of how we've cobbled the sense of self, to self together beyond our strife and beyond our opinions, 
beyond our conceptual knowledge and into experiential understanding to know what this body and mind is beyond the words and thoughts, beyond the opinions, beyond what other people say it is, and then just taking the easy way and saying, okay, I can believe that, but not experiencing it really for ourselves. So this is our beautiful journey here in this life, the journey that we take when we come on retreat like this, to have the courage to open to all of that, to know ourselves, those parts that are hard to know, difficult, and the parts that are beautiful, too. Because of this yearning, we enter another realm, if we allow ourselves to. And that is the realm of moment-to-moment experience. And this is what we uh, guide you in, in the practice every day, the understanding of knowing and experiencing moment to moment whatever arises in the field of the body, in the field of the mind. This, seeing this underneath the conceptual realm is where the truth of life is exposed. This is from a great Sufi master, uh, Hafiz, who lived in the 1300s. When the words stop and you can endure the silence, that reveals your heart's pain, or the emptiness, or that great wrenching, that sweet longing. That is the time to listen to what the beloved's eyes most want to say. So it's beyond the words and thoughts. It's beyond what we believe others to say. It's really seeing, knowing, experiencing in this very body, mind, in ourselves. We learn that what it takes sometimes to receive the truths of inner life, uh, this inner life, is some stillness, some attention. We need the skill set of equanimity, of loving kindness, of compassion, of courage, of all of those paramis that Steve talked about earlier, practicing our goodness, generosity, living harmoniously. We need this entire skill set in order to uh, go more deeply into the truth of life. I found an an old journal where I had written that I was feeling a quiet desperation, and Manindra was around. And I asked Manindra, in reporting to him what I was going through in my heart, I said, that I, I don't know how to describe it, but there's a quiet desperation. And um, it feels like the heart wants to go someplace where it hasn't gone before. It wants to know something that hasn't been known before, and not just to rehash what it has known, or to even hear it from you. I want to hear it from my own heart. And Manindra asked me, um, first he told me that that was samvega. There was an actual word for that kind of uh, quiet desperation, that spiritual urgency, as it's called. And then he asked, 
Do you know what the meaning of your life is? Do you ever ask yourself that? What is the meaning of your life? And I said, no, I, I really haven't gone to that place. And I asked him, what could be the meaning of my life? What is the meaning of your life? And he said, to develop wisdom and compassion. That's the meaning of our lives. And that can mean many things at different times for each of us. So he asked me again, what is my spiritual goal? And at that time, all I could say was, in my own language, was to know God. That's the only way I could say it. Um, but there was this very strong direction in my life, and I did everything I could uh, based on what I knew at that time. Manindra quoted from the Beatitudes from the Bible because he had read the Bible completely. And he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And he started to explain to me that for one thing, in the Buddhist uh, language, there is no word God. There is no like ultimate, absolute being somewhere outside of oneself, but that there is an experience that one might uh, relate to where that experience can be, when one comes out of it, says, I've experienced the unconditioned beyond this world, which might be God. I can't use that word in the same way I used it before. So he asked me after he said, blessed are the pure in heart, he said, is your heart pure? And I said, no, I know it's not. There's a lot there of uh, uh, holding on, of ill will, wanting to lash out, <laughs> strike out. And he explained to me that what this path is all about is purifying all of that in your mind, in your heart, letting go of greed and hatred and delusion, not seeing clearly. And gradually I came to understand that it wasn't in this path about attaining anything, about attaining any state or about um, seeing balls of light or about being in bliss. But it was about the lessening, the purification of greed, hatred, and delusion in the heart. And so that's what became important to me um, in my direction of life, in this spiritual urgency. The presence of various forms of greed, hatred, and delusion created a great sense of separation, a quiet desperation, an existential discomfort. And you might say that this is a time when I came to really grok, really understand the first noble truth, what Steve was speaking about last night. Dukkha Satcha, the truth of Dukkha. This is true. Dukkha exists. And I realized that I was spending most of my life 
being in denial of that, not really opening to that truth. And much of my spiritual life up to that point was trying to experience something without opening to that truth first, without um, believing, believing that I could just go around that truth and just be enlightened, so to say, without experiencing the nobility of that existential truth. So when I was not busy covering that up with my life or distracting myself with things to do and being able to do this mindfulness practice, bringing that bare attention to -to moment-to-moment experience, I discovered that there was much more ease in my life, in my heart. And um, I came to see that it was okay to bring attention to this place, because in that deep attention, there could be a sense of ease, being able to face it without turning away, without running away. I came across um, this beautiful writing by Anna Akhmatova of Russia and her courage to just write about what she was experiencing during the war. Her son was imprisoned and she had to wait for a long time to see him uh, many times. She had the courage to come face to face with suffering. So this was a preface to one of her books. In the terrible years of the Yeshov terror, I spent 17 months waiting in line outside the prison in Leningrad. One day, somebody in the crowd identified me. Standing behind me was a woman with lips blue from the cold. She started out of the torpor common to us all and asked me in a whisper. Everyone whispered there. She said, can you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had been her face. Can we describe those moments? Can we get close to cl- close up to those moments and not flinch? This is what our practice asks of us. Can we relax more, not be overwhelmed or subsumed by what we face in our hearts or day to day in life? To feel the freedom of not resisting it if it's unpleasant, to feel the freedom of not getting attached to it if it's pleasant. It's a huge relief to be able to do this, to be able to face the first noble truth, the fact of suffering, the fact that life is so uncontrollable, the fact that it doesn't satisfy permanently Any bit of it doesn't give permanent satisfaction. Fleeting, yes, but can't hold on to the fleeting nature of anything. Can't hold on even to a sense of I or me or mine that we cobble together because certain things come together in a moment 
causes and conditions come together. In seeing closely, clearly, we can't make a solid sense of anything, even a sense of I. And as Steve said last night, uh, all of us in the Dharma are so grateful to our teachers who didn't hold back the gravity and depth of this, who did not soft pedal the truth or avoid it or say it was so easy because they believed in our capacity to experience the truth of this Dharma and be liberated by it. So we need the courage here to really attend to the yearning, the ardency that we feel. Manindra used to say, I used to ask him, why does it hurt so much? Why does it hurt so much to go through this? And he would say, because your heart is tangled in a tangle. And in the untangling, there is a lot of pain that comes out. A lot of pain is locked in the crevices of those tangles. So I found once a teaching of the Buddha. Once uh, someone asked him, this generation, this, this person asked, this generation is entangled in a tangle. I ask you, O Gotama, who can disentangle this tangle? And the Buddha replied, one established in virtue, wise, developing the mind with wisdom, one who is ardent and discreet, that one can disentangle the tangle. So our ardency, our ability to really discern what is needed in the moment, being in the inner terrain of our hearts, facing the outer terrain of the world, if we're not intimately familiar with what's going on inside, it knocks us around. It leads us like we have a noose around our neck. Many times, I know you have experienced, I have experienced times when I feel I can't go on, but the next moment I can go on. We go on because of the tenderness and compassion for ourselves. We go on because we have become more and more familiar with facing these truths. We don't back away or we don't push away. We don't close down. It's said that equanimity activates this compassion, this ability to come closer to the truth out of caring. It takes first some sort of balance to be able to come close to what's difficult. And it's that activation of that urge to come close, to face whatever's happening out of a deep care uh, that is brought closer to what's going on. So it's said that it's equanimity that activates compassion. It's interesting that in research done on the physical brain while meditators were doing compassion practice, they found that the part of the brain that is activated during compassion practice is the area that controls the urge to act. And that's why uh, in the Buddhist teachings, 
there is this uh, description of how does it feel when compassion is in the heart. And the description is all about uh, there's kind of a stirring in the heart and a readiness to act. And that's how we feel during that time. One time I was in practice, and uh, this is what another Sayadaw, Bilan Sayadaw, a very uh, older Sayadaw from Burma. He was from this place called Bilan, so they call him Bilan Sayadaw. And I was telling him of some unrelenting experience of dukkha expressing itself. Sometimes it came with a story, but most of the time it was realized in a universal way. It didn't come with any story at all. And I wanted to have a story with it, but you know, to blame it on something. But there was nothing to blame it on a lot of times. Actually, this is a good thing, because then we realize, ah, oh, this is the noble truth of suffering. This is what everybody experiences. Sometimes, as I said, it was very personal, wrapped up in some personal story, but sometimes not, most times not. When I went into him and told him, bit by bit, what the heart and mind, body were going through, he never really gave any advice to say, okay, now do this practice or do that practice. He said something in Burmese, and then the translator, uh, um, a friend of ours also, just turned to me and said, in, a, in the same caring way that Bilan Seidao said to me, I could feel in his tone, simply said, this is how life is. This is how it is. Those same words that we learn in the equanimity practice. And that, that comment said everything. It wasn't like, now you do this, or no, no technique. It was just a simple, open-hearted acceptance of the suffering in that moment. I went on to hear during that retreat I was in that resisting it, running away from it, only added more layers of pain to the experience. But it took a relaxing heart, a lot of equanimity, which brought in compassion, enabling the mind, mindfulness, to draw nearer to what was going on, to face what had not been faced as closely before, and learning from that place more deeply the truth of life. Again, the truth of the ever-moving, changing experience of life, more deeply, experientially, understanding impermanence more deeply understanding experientially that can't hold on to any experience in life as ultimately or permanently satisfying. Really coming face to face with the unreliability of life and feeling this is how it is. Seeing through that impermanence how where is any self that I can point to and hold on to. It wasn't at the core. It wasn't the edge. It wasn't really even in connection with other selves, so to say. There was nothing that I could point to or hold on to as self. 
yes, there was a sense of self cobbled together by all these experiences, but not any enduring self anywhere. So more and more deeply, experientially, not because anybody said so, but I remembered what my teachers had said, but not because I just blindly believed them or that I could put an understanding of, oh yeah, this is not self, and that was it, and that I stopped investigating. But through more and deeper understanding, those truths became experientially powerful in my own heart. To be able to touch those deep places is very fulfilling. So equanimity, compassion, coming close to what's going on, opening to wisdom, deeper and deeper, over and over again. It's not the end when we think we, over, we open to it once. It's about touching it, touching those truths over and over and over again. Um, even those seidaos and wonderful teachers in the Dharma who we think have gone beyond, they even say, my path is not yet ended. There's more to experience. There's more understanding of this wisdom. The um, near enemy of compassion is called grief, but it's this unhealthy kind of grief where when we uh, open to what's painful, we get so bogged in feeling pity or feeling sorry for ourselves or others that we can't see clearly. We feel like we're drowning. This is a very weakened state of mind. We can't help anybody in this state of mind. The other side of it, the far enemy, is called cruelty. When the pain is so difficult, when it's so hard to be with, and we don't have enough balance of equanimity that supports the compassion, that when the heart opens to this kind of very, very difficult pain, the mind strikes out with cruelty, or it closes down. That's when we're cruel to ourselves, or turns away um, because we can't take the pain. So the near enemy, unhealthy grief, and the far enemy, cruelty. It's good to know the range of where the heart can go. On one side of the middle path, cruelty. On the other side of the middle path of compassion is this unhealthy kind of grief or pity. What we have to do is just connect with that pain without reacting. That's why the equanimity comes in. Come to that place and just be there. Just touch it. What we come to see when this happens over and over again, when we come to the body, for example, and touch it with mindfulness over and over again, it enters a different realm. It enters the realm of uh, beyond the concept of body, beyond the concept of me or mine or who I am, 
it goes beyond the personal and into the impersonal or into the universal understanding. What we call body becomes so intangible, so thin, so porous. It's seen as dissolving over and over again. Various sensations arising and passing away. What we call maybe the knee will have sensations of what we call pain. Two different concepts, but in actual experience, in coming close to it with equanimity, compassion, mindfulness, there is experience just the hardness or the softness of that what is called pain, what is called body, what is called knee. It's seen underneath those concepts. Heat or coolness, roughness or smoothness, heaviness or lightness. When those experiences are experienced, there's no overlay of thought or concept that this is me, this is mine, this is who I am. The continuity of mindfulness, and that's why the continuity of practice is so important, not a stop-and-go thing, but just keep it in a relaxed, continuous mode. It comes to be in that realm and see what's going on there. It gets so close to the hardness the softness or the heat or the coolness momentarily, that it notices mindfulness, notices, reflects the melting, the changing, the dissolving, the insubstantiality of that experience. Often in our practice or yogis will say, there's no body. I sat, sit here and there's no sense of what can be called body. Um, Steve has told the story and, and myself too walking around and feeling like there's nothing walking around you have to look to see is the body there it's just totally there's this total lightness happening so it's like of course you know you see it but there's no feeling of it there there's this utter um experience of the insubstantiality of the body. The understanding of where can we call me, mine, or self in this body deepens during that time. But of course that's not the end of it. Experiences in the realm of what we call mind so powerful. The mind is so powerful yet so ephemeral. Also those uh, coming close to those experiences moment to moment. The subtle experience of what is called Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings. Mindfulness reflects, comes close to. We think these feelings are me or mine or who, who I am. But when mindfulness reflects closely and wisdom sees clearly, it sees this is dissolving. There's no substantiality, no solidity. There's no core. There's no outer boundary. There's nothing in these feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral that can be called me or mine. Even pleasant feelings 
there's nothing satisfying there because they're fleeting. They go away so quickly. They're impermanent. Perception. We think when there's something perceived, the eyes open, something is seen and perceived. The ears are open, something is heard, and so forth and so on with the various sense doors. There's this wrong understanding that I perceive. Perception is mine. Perception belongs to me. But in a fleeting moment of perception, this is seen as not true. It doesn't belong to anyone. It's a moment because other conditions have come together and perception takes place. It's a moment when perception is seen as dissolving, impermanent, no core anywhere, no boundary, not connected to any other being's cores that makes up a self. I never uh, saw this so clearly before. Um, it's, it's said that all of these that I'm going to mention, the five khandhas, um, they're called the five khandhas, all of these need to be seen through in mindfulness, not just about the body, but all one by one in the mind. Once uh, we were with Utejaniya, and um, we were taking him actually to the beach on Maui, and um, I said, Seidao, how are you? What's going on? Are you okay? And he said, oh yes, everything's okay. And I, he said, just perception, just perception is taking place. Perception, just knowing perception. And I thought, oh, he's knowing perception in everyday life. It just made it so possible, you know, <laughs> and not, not just in like deep retreat. So after that, it was like just being able to see perception arising, changing, and passing away in everyday life. Consciousness, knowing. This is another experience in the realm of the mind, so powerful, so ephemeral. This is a really um, big spiritual trap. Consciousness, knowing, even that. We think consciousness is my consciousness, that when knowing happens, it's I know, that it belongs to me, or mine, or who I am. But when mindfulness is continuous and it brings in deep wisdom, that wisdom comes to see that a moment of knowing is fleeting, a moment of consciousness, just like perception, just like Vedana, just like the body, a moment of knowing that has no core, has no boundary, is not connected to any other core anywhere else. And the last one is intention. There's a wrong understanding that when a t intention arises in the mind, that we control it, that there's someone in control. But that is also seen as not belonging to me. No control over that. Conditions just come together. Habits are part of conditions, just come together. And intentions happen. 
we can incline the mind there. But in a moment that it happens, it comes together because of conditions, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. So within all this is awareness also itself. Awareness is not permanent, is not me, is not mine, is not who I am. Some of these places we can get caught in and say, I know who I am. What's permanent is awareness. What's permanent is consciousness. But the practice has to see that this is not so or else it isn't deep enough. So in each moment, like the Buddha says, and I'm paraphrasing him, each moment is seen as a flickering star, a mirage, a flame, a magical illusion, a a dewdrop, a bubble on a stream, a dream, a flash of lightning. It's just the flow of experience and the awareness of it. Each moment of the flow is impermanent. The awareness of it is impermanent. The breath or any experience in the body changing sensations and the awareness of them. Hearing and the awareness of it. Eating, tasting and the awareness of that. Smelling and the awareness of it. Moods of the mind, aversion, compassion, jealousy, joy, and the awareness of it. Moment to moment, this is seen bit by bit, pixel by pixel. The thought process, like an ever-changing energy field, and just the awareness of it. Each moment, even the awareness, arising and passing away just the elemental experience and the bare, naked attention with it. This is experiencing the purity of the present moment. It's not enough to be present. It has to develop wisdom. It's not being in the now that frees the mind. It's wisdom, understanding that frees the mind. So this vividness of an unfiltered life takes place because of the coming together of compassion and wisdom. Each moment of life is seen more clearly, more unregretfully, uh, more with more freedom in it. There could be suffering, but as it says, uh, as the Buddha said, there is suffering but no one who suffers. There is enlightenment, but no one who is enlightened. That's a kind of a deep koan to understand, but it's all about the understanding of anicca, anatta, and dukkha. So it's this breaking up of such deep habit patterns that go on and on and on if mindfulness and wisdom isn't coming close to the moment-to-moment experience, fueled by wanting, fueled by not wanting, fueled by not seeing clearly. Greed, hatred, delusion. And so on deeper levels, mindfulness, wisdom becomes stronger. 
Sometimes we have enough mindfulness to reflect the moment, see what's going on, be in the present moment, so to say, but not enough wisdom to really let go. And to say that in another way, we may have enough mindfulness to be in the present moment, but not enough wisdom to see impermanence. Because we don't let go like, okay, I'm going to let go now, and now we're letting go. It's Letting go is all about understanding, experiencing deeply impermanence. Everything is really letting go of itself. Can that be known? So it's not about racking up spiritual experiences or to just overlay a so-called experience onto our own experience and think that we're done or, you know, we, we've, we're enlightened already. It's about purifying the heart of patterns that cause suffering, letting go of those patterns from a deep understanding. So the evanescence of it all starts connecting in a deep way to see how all of this leads to the sense of that deep interconnectedness that gives us a great sense of security uh, amidst this insecurity in life. At the elemental level, when there arises the experience of hardness, softness, expansion, contraction, This is the earth element in the body. Sometimes it's felt in the mind, the hardness or the softness, expansion or contraction, even in the mind. You might say that at this place, when there's no self, there's that realization of, there's just this happening in the awareness of it, just this. There's the earth element expressing itself and the knowing of it. This is what connects us all to other beings, other bodies, and to the earth itself. In a moment of realizing that the hardness, softness, expansion, contraction in this what we call body, what we may call my body, how is that different from the mother in Iraq who experiences the pain in her knees or in her arms from holding her children. When there is heat, the various degrees of hot and warmth and coolness, this is the fire element in the body, in the mind. This is what connects us also on that deep level where there is no self to all beings, to the fire element of nature to Madame Pele of the volcanoes of Hawaii. How can I say that the fire element in this body is different from the fire element in anyone else's body? When someone is feeling the fire element of anger in a far-off land, that element is known in this mind and body too. I understand that element 
through compassion, through wisdom, through not feeling separate, through non-self. When there is swaying and jerking and vibration and stiffness in the body, this is the air element. All beings and the atmosphere, the breath, the wind, this is the air element. It's not me, it's not mine. I don't own it. It doesn't belong to me or anybody. But this is the air element that all beings experience beyond a sense of self. And the water element that binds everything, it's experienced as heaviness, really, uh, indirectly. Outwardly, it may be expressed as tears from the eyes. How can I say that the tears that drop from my eyes because I see suffering in the world or in my children? How can I say that that's any different from the mother in Uganda or in the Bronx? It's the water element. It doesn't separate. There's a deep interconnectedness. So we experience the vividness of life this way, touching the feeling of safety, of living in this great web, connected, yet knowing how coreless it all is. We're not confused. We live a much fuller life. There's wisdom. There's compassion. It flows easily. And in fact, when there is this kind of wisdom, compassion flows naturally, abundantly, much more easily. We come closer to being really human. Milarepa said, just as I intrinsically care for a wound in my own leg as part of my body, why should I not reach out intrinsically to heal and care for the wound in another wherever it exists as part of this body. Not separate, yet ephemeral. How we act, what we do, what we say, how we think is utterly important. As I said earlier, this uh, saying by Padmasambhava puts it together beautifully. Though my view is as vast as the sky, still my conduct is as refined as white barley flour. So this deep understanding of the evanescence of life actually brings us to the deep interconnectedness of all of life. We become more complete human beings. We experience our lives from a fuller place of understanding and begin to live more life more fully. Spiritual maturing occurs when we begin to hold these two together, when we integrate these two understandings. Yes, may be hidden on an everyday level, there is just a collection 
a flow of these changing processes, these aggregates, these khandhas, body, feelings, perception, consciousness, intention. And yet, there is a relative level we must integrate into that life, that deep understanding of life, that there is a sense of self that we must deal with, where we're interconnected with each other, how we affect each other in life. We must be very careful about that. Aiken Roshi, one of our mentors in Hawaii, in the Zen tradition, says very uh, wisely, we hear about no self and think it's wrong to have a self. But your self can be the agent of good in the world. This is from uh, Kala Rinpoche. We live in an illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you know that you are nothing. In being nothing, you are everything. That is all. That really brings it together. So, holding both, living appropriately, but knowing deeply, not confused, knowing experientially, not taking anyone's word for it. There's a sense of a great holding in life, being in this web of life, a sense of deep ecology. So love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.